This week, it's the sage wisdom of LRT operations. We're talking about transit fares, and we'll be hearing from Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson about his approach to transit fare policy. And Edmonton does some TLC for LRT by indiscriminately shutting down stations. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 31. This is a council off week this week, so we get to... take a break, step back, and address some of our backlog of stuff. One of those things is I sat down with Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson last year, and you'll hear that interview later in the show. It's just been sitting in the queue because there's been too much news. But first, rapid fire. Central LRT station will be closed for 21 days in order to replace lights and ceiling tiles. The entire station will be closed, and while trains will still run through, no one can get off or on. When asked for comment on the question, how many city employees does it take to change an LRT light bulb? The city of Edmonton responded, I don't know, but it'll take them three weeks. Revitalization work will begin on the 66th Street Tunnel on April 28th, immediately after upgrades to the central LRT station are slated to be complete. This will reduce frequency to 12 minutes, requiring all LRT trains to be five cars long. As the temporary Nate station can only fit three cars, this will mean that station will be out of service for three months until this tunnel work is complete. Ceasing service to the best Kingsway station, and the only station in the area that's not named Kingsway, comes as retaliation from City of Edmonton employees concerned about their job security after hearing that Nate is now offering a changing a light bulb in less than two weeks course. In a final bit of LRT-related news, due to maintenance work on the LRT overnight storage facility, trains will now stay overnight in the parking lot at the end of the line by Century Park. This will mean that there will be no park and ride at Century Park until late 2020, when the upgrade is supposed to be complete. Now that bit of news is fake, and I'm lying to you, but the fact that it doesn't seem out of place really makes you think. No doubt. Speaking Municipally is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. This week we're going to tell you about Let's Do Coffee, which is a podcast hosted by the Maji Center at Nate. It's hosted by Daniel Van Velen and produced by the Maji Center for New Venture and Student Entrepreneurship. Each episode features an interview with a student entrepreneur or Nate alumnus. They dive into topics that explore their challenges, questions, and fears involved in operating their companies. Typically comes out every two weeks, and you can find the show at nate.ca slash Center or albertapodcastnetwork.com. So let's start this week by talking about transit fares. It's basically came up on the March 5th uh, Urban Planning Committee meeting. There was the return of Aaron Paquette's famed free transit motion. It's been percolating since budget. We initially didn't really cover this because I thought, eh, not a lot happened. We saw what we expected to see. But I think that's not actually true. So Mac, from a surface level, before Troy started digging, what did you think happened at this meeting? It seemed to me like administration brought a report forward saying we're going to do this work to satisfy what you've directed us to do on looking up information on whatever they call it, not free transit, but um, ridership recovery and growth, I think is the terminology they picked in true administration fashion. It can't be clear and easy to understand. Uh, and it, Or searchable. Or searchable, no doubt, connected to anything they've done before. And uh, my perception is Urban Planning Committee basically said, 
Great. That was essentially what I thought, too. I thought, hey, we had this motion in last November about studying free transit. It's coming back for a little checkpoint and then it's keep on trucking and the report will get done. Because we've seen many of these checkpoints that are just like, what a waste of a report. At some point, you start to tune out what happens. Sure. And that's what we did. And we said, okay, well, we don't even need to cover this on the podcast because we're not going to get any real information until, say, November. So I sort of ignored it. And that was a mistake because there's a lot of interesting stuff. In this week of Speaking Municipally, we're going to get real policy wonk and take you into the nitty gritty. So by ignore it, Troy means he's actually paying attention to this so you don't have to. (laughs) Right. And now you're going to benefit. Right. I think it's important to start with how council directs administration. It's important to know that no counselor can just like call up the city manager and say, hey, get me a report on this or hey, do this work. Council can only direct administration as a group. They have to pass a motion to direct administration to do stuff. Legally, there must be a motion. That's the way the process works, though. Over the years, you've probably heard of mayors. Mm, losing their temper a bit with administration, shall we say, and inadvertently directing work. There's always ways to get work done, you know, behind the scenes. But, you know, there should be motion, especially for the big stuff. Yeah. And that's our accountability mechanism. We know that city council is running the city because there's a paper trail of direction. So that's why it was a really big concern for me when I saw that at the March 5th Urban Planning Committee, the motion to study the economic impacts of transit. It's Aaron Paquette's motion that we talked about before. It basically asks administration to look at the economic and environmental benefits and return on investment of transit, as well as look at fare-related policies, including zero fare. That motion didn't get passed. But administration is still going to look at the economic and environmental impacts of transit and study fare policy, including a zero fare. And now that's weird. So there's a motion on the floor. Yes. There's a motion to say administration and more specifically city manager, because that's the only person we can direct as council, go do this work. It comes back to this committee and they don't approve it, which means you can't say the will of council is to go do the work, right? That is true. The will of council pretty plainly back in November was that we shouldn't do this work. If you remember when Paquette first made this motion. The word free just made everybody freak out. There was news articles. There was riots. Uh, Don Iveson, I accused him of hating transit. (laughs) A whole slew of things happened. But eventually, uh, Paquette reworded the motion. He put it back on the floor. And in November, they said, okay, check in in uh, March and say how much work this motion is going to cause you to do. Because at the time, of course, administration said, no, we're not looking at zero fare. We're not looking at the broad strokes of economic impact because that would require additional staffing. And that's not currently in our scope of work. So this motion was made or put on the floor, sorry, in November. Uh, Before we get into where we're at now, why didn't they just approve the motion then? Council opted to say, okay, hold on. Instead of just pursuing with directing administration to do this work, here's the motion. Let's refer this motion back to administration. Administration will look at it, tell us how much work would be required to do all of this, come back and tell us, and then we'll tell you to go forward. So just a checkup to make sure, oh, we're not spending a couple hundred million dollars on something. So that's what happened. And administration did their dutiful due diligence. And they came back. The motion at is on the floor. So Paquette's original transit motion, it's on the floor, ready to be dealt with. And administration has come back and said, We are going to do all this work. We're going to do all the stuff that we said we weren't going to do before. 
it is going to cost no dollars to the taxpayer. And we're going to bring back a new report on transit studies. And this is all in our regular scope of work. And so the recommendation is just receive this report for information. Correct. Which means what for the motion? Which means the motion died on the floor. There was It was never voted down and it was never voted in favor of. It was just, well, this motion has become irrelevant because we've received for information all this work that we want to have done. Right. Let's take a step back, see how many listeners we've lost. Like, why does this matter? Why does any of this matter? Well, there's a couple important points. One is that we don't want our councils directing administration. Because without going through the proper without going through the process, because then you could have, say, for example, John D from Ward Three directing administration not to fund Pride anymore, right? Because they didn't let him wear his military uniform, right? This would be bad, and we would want to have public motions. So, it's like anything; it's checks and balances, and making sure you have accountability on power. So, it's very much a good thing that we need motions to direct administration. What happened right here is Paquette wanted some research done. There's no motion directing administration to do all that research. And yet that research is getting done. So is Paquette directing administration without a motion? Or is somebody else? Or is somebody else? Pulling the strings here? I would say a one. Paquette is a rookie counselor who uh, likes to say a lot of stuff. If you've read his Twitter feed, he says a lot of stuff. And you mentioned at the top of the show, right when I started talking about how we don't want people directing yeah. administration, that previous mayors in the past have gotten frustrated with the process. And this is all I can think. There is only one counselor whose office has enough sort of gumption and power to do this sort of back channeling. Is it possible that the mayor's office has sort of said, we want to kill this motion, take the teeth out of it, whether it's because he doesn't want Paquette to get credit, whether it's because he doesn't. And this is the important key part. When administration came back and said, we're already doing this work, so no motion required, there is no actual direction of the work administration has to do now. Before, there was a motion that clearly said, including zero fare. Now it's receive administration's report for information that they're going to do all the studying they need to do. And so for um, people like us, there's now no longer a trail to follow necessarily, right? This mm -hmm. potentially gets rolled into some bigger thing that may or may not come back and may or may not be obviously connected to this motion. Uh, and there's nothing on the record to help us identify why this motion was brought forward and didn't get taken forward. And... Except for this podcast. Crucially, there's also nothing to identify whether the report that administration has come back with actually jives with what was asked for. And right. we saw with the speed limit discussion last week, that's not always a given. Administration doesn't always do what they're asked to do. Right. In many ways, all of that is a problem. And now, why do I suspect that completely unfounded speculatory allegations here that the mayor might have had a hand in it? Well, because our mayor... The big problem he had with Paquette's motion was the free. And he, so the motions on the floor actually was an amended motion, right? In that November meeting, Mayor Iveson put forward a motion to insert a couple of words around uh, part two, which is the one specifically that deals with zero fare. So you're right. He was already on edge about this idea of free zero fare transit. Don Iveson has a long history of working on transit fares policy, which I actually got to sit down and talk with him about 
why don't we roll that clip and give you some context on the mayor's opinion of transit fares. So the $700 million that basically comes from transit every year, we, the city white paper on user fee says that for every year we invest in transit of about 200 million, 250 million of taxpayer dollars and 130 million of user dollars nets us 700 million in public value. How do you rationalize not putting all of our money into transit every year, given that it's a couple hundred percent? Well, it's 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 a great question uh, because we're in budget right now and, and it's all about competing priorities. If I had unlimited resources, there's lots of things I'd put more money into. Um, but but I'll just back up and say that I actually think the $700 million number is very, very conservative. There was a uh, study done after the big transit strike in Ottawa uh, a few years back that identified that when they lost their system for about a month, uh, they figured it was a $200 million economic impact in terms of lost productivity um, just because labor mobility had been impacted and then other disruptions and knock on effects added costs to people who were having to, you know, reactivate cars and carpool and the traffic congestion was, was horrific. And so, um, people in Ottawa came to understand the value of their transit system by losing it for a period of time through, through a strike. And there was a subsequent study, uh, that, uh, that showed that the value of transit in Ottawa, which is a comparable size city to Edmonton, was actually closer to $2 billion a year. So I actually think the $700 million uh, value is low. However, you know, what is the value of potable water? And the same argument could be made, you know, well, we should expand the water system, except that we've achieved ubiquity there. Like everybody has clean drinking water. This is one of the great, you know, sanitation and city building marvels of our, t of our age. Um, but we also don't give water away for free because if we did, and, and in fact, the city has a sophisticated approach to pricing that is often looked at um, around North America as best in class. We do something called inclined block pricing in our water pricing, because if we gave it away for free, everyone would just run the taps all the time and take 45 minute showers and water their lawn six times a week. The problem with elasticity is if you make the price zero, demand rises asymptotically towards infinity because um, people will just use something in an unconstrained way. And the problem is water itself is actually a constrained resource and it has a lot of implications. And, and uh, so, so that's why we price it. And I'm of the same view that you have to price transit because if you just give it away for free, first of all, there's an argument that people will take it for granted and devalue it. And we saw this even with newspapers uh, 15 or 20 years ago when, when a lot of daily newspapers started dumping copies of, of their paper on university campuses across the country as a, as a readership development strategy. But then what they found several years later was that university students, when they graduated, were not likely to become subscribers because they had become accustomed to this thing being given to them for free. Why would they start paying for something that wasn't worth anything? And so there is a problem when you start giving something away for free that its value starts to become taken for granted. We see this with our roads. We see this with other things that we give away. People be feel entitled to them and resist paying anything for them. So I, w I would be very hesitant about pursuing um, a free policy for water for some of the same reasons that I would uh, be hesitant about giving, uh, albeit a an essential service and a public good, away for free in the form of transit. And so uh, the other issue is that, you know, we were talking about this idea that if you had $50 million fall from the sky, what would you do with it? Would you improve the quality of transit or would you reduce the fares or would you do a combination of both? 
And if you um, just reduce the fares on day one, you've got a problem because uh, basic economics and elasticity will tell you a whole bunch of extra people are going to start riding, even if you don't have enough money to give it away for free. Say if you had $50 million and you just chop about 40% of the cost off of all of the fares, then proportionately some extra people will show up. Problem is the system's at capacity, so you don't have any money left uh, to, to, put, to buy extra buses and to put on extra service to meet the rising demand. And then you've got frustrated people who are saying, well, this service isn't very good because it's full, notwithstanding that it's cheaper. So you've got a, a classic demand management problem if you start uh, increasing or inducing demand by giving something away for free. Same thing happens when we widen freeways, by the way. Uh, it's induced demand. And so you start giving transit away for cheaper or for free. You induce a bunch of new demand. And then you've got to accommodate that with more buses uh, and more service hours. And that's theoretically a good problem uh, strategically if you want to reduce traffic congestion. Um, the challenge is that there isn't $50 million falling from the sky. And even if there was, you know, if you use some of it to lower fares and some of it to put on new services, probably you could economically model this. You know, okay, we're going to lower fares by, you know, 16.7%. Demand will rise 21.3%. And, and the $50 million will cover exactly that discount. Like those lines can cross. There's an economic model for that. The problem is that $50 million doesn't fall from the sky. It, in our case, is going to come from property taxpayers who are already putting uh, more than $200 million a year on for diesel, uh, for diesel, uh, for windshield washer fluid, for tires, uh, and for drivers uh, on our buses. And that's just for the operating cost. The cost of a new bus is 450 to 500000 uh, we need one of those every 18 years. You can do the math on the amortization of it. New electric buses are closer to a million bucks, but they're cheaper to operate. So, you know, that's over and above the 200 million is the buses we buy, the trains we build, the bus garages we uh, have to build to keep the buses from freezing overnight and so on and so forth. So there's a massive, massive cost, all of which goes back to the taxpayer. And so really the question isn't what do, do the governors do for the extra 50 million? The question back to the taxpayer is, if you were going to give us 50 or 100 or 200 million more a year to put in transit, what's the optimal bet? Is it reducing the price of this thing or is it increasing the quality of the service? And I'm very much of the mind that we have a long way to go to increase the quality of the service. And that's why um, we've been focused on the bus network redesign. Uh, as long as that's taken, that's actually something I've been pushing for. You can go back and you can see an interview that I gave the night of my election in 2007. And the question I got asked is, what's your top priority? And I said, I want to fix the transit system. <laughs> so I've been working away at this for more than 11 years now. And it's taken a really long time to turn the ship. And it's not turned all the way yet. So bus network redesign, uh, implementation of the smart fare system, which will allow us to not just roll back the fare for everybody across the board, but look at pricing strategies around time of day, discounts to get people on on the weekends or on the evenings or in the middle of the day uh, to smooth out demand, uh, at which tends to peak during the peak hours. Um, strategies for looking at distance-based pricing, for example, to put some equity uh, into into the system because different different riders have different impacts and cost implications for the system, and yet we treat everybody the same right now, which I think is inequitable and misses an opportunity to have a more strategic approach to pricing that aligns with 
uh, our policies around densification and and uh, and so on. And so, long story short, um, pricing, just as with water, um, inclined block pricing. I should explain. I'm jumping around a little bit here. I realize, but inclined block pricing means that the more you use, the more you pay. It's a, a regressive pricing model in essence that means that everybody gets um, for a fairly low price um, enough to do the, the needs of a household um, while still recovering roughly the costs of the pipes and the chemicals and the pumps and the electricity and everything required. Uh, um, so it's a cost recovery kind of model for that. And then those people who have swimming pools and those people who insist on watering their lawns um, pay more you know, pass a certain uh, basic qu uh, quantity required for the operation of a household, the price goes up a bit. And then past another notch, it goes up again. And so that's a strategic approach to pricing. Again, it's looked at as best in class. I think we need to be looking at that kind of approach with transit, not just rolling back um, a very crude discount across the system that gets more people on a system that then gets stretched even further and that people say, well, it's still not worth what I'm paying. So I want to fix the fundamental problem, which is the quality of the service. And that's why we've also worked so hard to pull down billions of dollars worth of commitments from the provincial and federal governments to get the province and the new infrastructure deal to essentially make their transit commitments permanent. We're working with the feds to make those permanent, hopefully in 2019, so that we can roll out a rapid transit backbone, bend the bus network around that in a more efficient way that people would actually choose to ride and wouldn't mind paying a few bucks for. So, Mac, uh, having heard this for the first time just now, what what do you think? I mean, that's our mayor, right? He he knows the detail. He knows everything about these issues that he engages in. And he talks about it like he's an academic professor sometimes. As we were listening, uh, when he said, demand rises asymptotically towards infinity, you're just like, that's our mayor. That's our mayor. Yep. <laughs> Elasticity induced demand. Like, he talks about these things like average Hamiltonians are going to understand what he's talking about. And they don't. As a big fan of the West Wing, which celebrated Bartlett being a yeah. Nobel Prize winning economist, I appreciated I had spent, you know, the better part of the end of last year saying Don Ives and hates transit and really antagonizing him. And he invited me to the office and then said all that. And I'm like, and then he schooled you. Yeah, on I'm this like, topic. All right. <laughs> I mean, there's still points where we disagree sure. or have room for disagreement but but you can't just say he's like no free i'm all i'm against free i just hate the word free free is bad like he actually has he makes logic. some pretty reasoned arguments and especially the idea that you know we can economically model where transit fares should drop and how much service needs to increase and how much money that's going to cost because at the end of the day it comes down to cost transit is our second most expensive line item after police yeah and I like the idea that we can make a data-driven decision, right? We can do some actual research and modeling and predictions and use the data at hand to make a better decision. And that's kind of what he's driving at. Yeah, and politically, I can understand how if there's a report that comes back that says if we make transit free, demand would rise 150% and we would get, you know, 60,000 people out of their cars. Yeah. I can understand how that's a very politically difficult proposition to fight against even if it might cost 150 million dollars or something so avoiding that report coming back maybe that is in Iveson's best interests right when he was mentioning we couldn't increase demand because the system is already at capacity i bumped on that a little bit like it's not at capacity well 
is it at capacity? Because there's either two problems here. One is that our mayor thinks the system's at capacity when it's not. Or two, and I think this is probably the correct, our system is at capacity and we're not doing anything to change that because ask any student going to university, that system is at capacity. Those white Ave buses are full every morning and every evening and two or three will drive by before picking them up. So this is the issue when we talk about transit being at capacity, right? This is what the transit strategy is supposed to solve, I guess, is that there are certain lines and certain destinations and certain parts of our transit system that are at capacity. We could have there's greater demand. We could put more buses or, or um, build train lines along those those corridors and they would be filled with people. And there are other parts of the city, which under our previous strategy, we had to serve every last corner of the city had to have a bus that are not getting used at all. And so we're not spending the money where it needs to be spent. So the capacity argument is a bit strange for that reason. We're both software developers. So you mentioned a word as we were listening to describe how we're choosing to spend our money. Well, one of the things the mayor talked about uh, quite a bit about was increasing quality of service. And he said that's the fundamental problem in his mind, right? And he's been fighting for this for 10 years or whatever. And, and as a transit user myself, I agree. I think there's a lot of room to improve the quality of service. The term that I, I used when we were listening was yak shaving, right? So it's this term that's popular in software circles where it's like, okay, you have to do a task, Troy. In order to do the task, you start with this thing over here. And in order to do that, you have to do this thing over there and you have to talk to that person. And by the end of it, I come to ask you how you're doing with the original task. And you say, I'm getting to it, but I'm still shaving that yak. Right. That's the idea. And, you know, smart fare and the bus network redesign and all of these things, I guess, are good and they're in service of increasing quality of service. But at the end of the day, we're doing all of these other things and not actually increasing the quality of service. Like transit smart fare would be a great thing, right? I would love to have an app on my phone or whatever. But in order to do that, we had to go and talk to municipal partners or regional partners. And we had to go and do public engagement sessions. And we had to go and do market research. And we had to do like a thousand things. And guess what? Years later, we still don't have smart fare. So that's why I say it's yak shaving. And meanwhile, years later, we're all still paying more and more for transit. Transit right. fares increase. We have all these great ideological goals and lofty goals about improving transit service quality, but the idea that we need to do the entire rewrite at once, we need to fix the entire transit system right. at once, otherwise it's not worth doing. Uh, for example, maybe you could only close half of central LRT station at a time and replace half of the light bulbs. But no, we have to close the entire station for three weeks. But maybe in Horlack Park, maybe the whole park doesn't need to be closed for three years. Maybe right. it could have been done incrementally. Right. Uh, I don't see this in you a lot. You sound like a software developer, Troy. Let's break <laughs> it down into sprints and tasks. And Yeah. And but there's some logic to that, right? When we're talking about city projects, we're talking about a giant bureaucracy. I know in software development that if you try and rewrite the entire application in one go, it's not going to get finished. It is going to be in development hell for years and years and years. Right. Because sequestering three people all on one team to do the rewrite and get it done and meet client specs, that's impossible. Yeah. To do it in an organization of 15,000 people with so many levels of middle management and bureaucracy with changing lofty goals and changing governance when people changing get reelected. Yep. Yeah, that's that's impossible. That's not going to happen, which is why we need to take these small steps and get the quick wins where we can get them. 
rather than trying to do these don't let perfect be the enemy of good right the only other thing that i picked up on in his comments there again talking about increased quality of service is he kind of said well this is why we've gone and advocated to the other orders of government to uh to give us funding for this sustainable funding and it's like okay but increasing the quality of service doesn't necessarily mean adding new lrt lines like we could make the one we've got work a lot better first uh we could make the one we've got work as we mentioned in the rapid fire right. we're going to transition to the final segment of the night which is mac and troy rant about transit currently we've got a project called tlc for lrt which we talked about at the top of the show we're closing central lrt station to change a couple light bulbs we're not running trains to nate, nate. um and a lot of this felt like this is a third class transit system. i don't I'm sure you tweeted something to the effect of that. I did. Like, I tweeted about the lights at Central, and I said, really? We're closing it for three weeks to change lighting and ceiling tiles? And the thing that really grinds my gears about all of this, right, is that not only did they announce this, they knew that it was going to be politically unpalatable with the public, right? People were going to be upset about this. Uh, so they had people out at Central Station handing out information. I understand there might have been free coffee. The campaign has a little cutesy logo, TLC for LRT. Like they're trying to make it seem like this is a smoothing over thing. The other thing I tweeted is three months is an interesting number. So let's recap some of the things that are three months. Uh, three months is the amount of time that Trains won't be going to Nate uh, this spring and summer because the station's going to be closed. Three months is also the amount of time required to test Thales's signaling system um, to make sure that it worked. Three months, additionally, is the amount of time it would take the city to implement an entire signaling system from scratch, assuming Thales's signaling system didn't work. Do some of those three months seem to be able to be stacked overlapped in some way like uh, i tweeted about this i can't believe there wasn't any coordination maybe there was maybe there's a very good reason why they're not able to coordinate that stuff but it just seems like such an obvious thing we're not going to have trains running to nate that's a perfect time to be doing signal testing where we need the line to be down anyway maybe you know you could even develop your own signaling system right there because the lines close there's no public impacts you can run a one car train back and forth between nate and kingsway station speaking of running trains on the nate line yeah so here's the other question the reason that trains aren't going to nate is because due to reducing frequency the trains all need to be five cars long and the nate station which many people don't realize is a temporary station right in the interim before blatchford that station can only fit three trains so okay that makes sense except it doesn't really because imagine you've got a fork in the road for lrt you've got the capital line and then the fork off for who uh the metro line and the train could just run from nate to churchill station and then ping pong back and forth this would solve a lot of our signaling problems and you could have higher frequency on the metro line because it's just dumping at churchill station i am baffled as to why that was not the selected solution the selected solution is, in fact, metro line trains have to run from health sciences station at the university, duplicate the capital line for those like five blocks, but not the Clairview and not the Century Park, it's and then kid. go all the way to Nate. Right. Uh, it's absurd to me. Uh, like, even if there was a reason that ping pong the train wouldn't work, there's no reason for metro line trains to duplicate only some of the line. 
but not all of it. Well, I imagine it's probably because of some sort of study somewhere said people would go to Nate from health sciences and not want to have to get off the train, but that doesn't really hold water the way that it's been working because good luck getting a Metroline train anyway. So that brings us to the final question about Metroline. Is it done? Is it done? They were So they received the system from Thales December 4th. Yes. They, they were supposed to test it over, they, I, the quotes I could find said several months, which to me is at least three. It's been now four. We are in contract default negotiations with Thales, and our entire situation with them has devolved to this. Right. And in four months, we have not decided if what we have is done. That strikes me as aggressively competent. Is that the word I'm looking for? Well, and in the past, it was always this back and forth between Thales and the city, right? But Thales has been pretty clear since October that they think it's ready to go. They think it's done. They think it's working. Yeah, signal storms notwithstanding. And the city has been deathly silent. What do you make of that? What What is the city doing? I have still held that this means we're definitely suing Thallus and that it's not done. In this case, no news is definitely bad news. Right. They don't want to have anything on record because they don't want to influence their dealings, legal dealings with Thallus. But even then, if something is so obviously incomplete... How long does it take for you to discover that it's obviously incomplete and insufficient? I think immediately, but say generally it takes them a month. In that time, they could have said, okay, Thales didn't do it. We're building our own system and the system should be done now. It would be up and running. Yeah. So um, I don't know. Uh, this is this is the enigma of speaking municipally. I have no idea what is going on in that house. I don't think anybody does. That's the problem. Well, one company that does know what's going on in Alberta is ATB, the subject of our next ad. And Mac, did you miss a couple words? It just says ATB here. No, they're a bank. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's right. That's it. Despite all the other various services that ATB offers, they're still the bank too. Uh, they offer digital checking and savings account, no monthly fee, no minimum balance, unlimited digital transactions and interact e-transfers, earn interest on higher balances, and you can even save Money and paper with ATB's digital, no fee, all in bank account. Wow. ATB, they're such innovators. And they're the wonderful sponsor of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, of which we're a proud member. And that's going to sum it up for this member's podcast for this week. Uh, we're a product of Taproot Edmonton, which, if you haven't been following, Taproot has still had ongoing coverage of the, uh, the city market story. I've seen the story get updated three or four times at this point. Yeah, we've uh, decided to stay on the case and continue to follow up leads and things that we were chasing prior to publishing the story. And we've learned some additional information about it. We've been able to confirm that the city of Edmonton issued a, a notice to the market to say they couldn't be on 104th Street at the end of December 2018. And we've confirmed that the city is actually the ones that are leasing the GWG building and subleasing it to the city market. So some new information. We're still chasing down a few other things and we've got some uh, behind the scenes photos to share too. Like you said, following a beat always gives you that new information and the best beats are the Taproot Edmonton weekly roundups and they come out every day so you can subscribe at taprootedmonton.ca. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And I'm Don. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.